Good morning. My name's Vicky and I lead church currently in the northeast of England alongside my husband Barry. Before we did that, we also led a church in the southeast of England, just over in Farnham Common for a number of years. And while we were there, we were involved a little bit with Gold Hill. So it's my privilege today to be able to bring and share God's word with you. The theme for this day is different relationships and it's taken from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. So if you have a Bible or a phone app we'll be reading that together in just a few moments. Now I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s in a non-Christian home. My grandmother had her own business. My mother went out to work. The Prime Minister at the time was a woman and the Queen a woman. I sat alongside boys in school in every subject that I took and my understanding of the world was that as a girl I was equally as able as the boys I sat alongside, worked alongside and competed alongside. The first time I encountered a different view of a woman's role in the world was in the church. When I was 16, I was given the opportunity to preach for the very first time. And arriving at church that morning, I was informed that a couple had come in that day who didn't believe that a woman should speak or preach or teach in church. I have encountered that biblical viewpoint many times since. I have been told that I, my opinion has no value because I am a, not a man. I have been told that women should be silent in church, that it is not their place to teach and preach while watching the many faithful women Sunday by Sunday take out boys and girls to teach them the Bible in Sunday school. I have been told that women are too irrational and that is why men must lead the church, that it is simply God's way and we must obey while sitting silently at home reading about Jackie Pullinger as she followed God to China to proclaim Christ. I've listened to the stories of women who have felt gifted and called to serve Christ through the leading of the church only to be told that they are disqualified, not based on gifting or ability, but simply because they were born a woman and their place is to submit to a man. So what does the Bible teach us about men and women and what does God expect of us? the called out people of God, the church as a light to the world and an example of godly living. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 7, wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold or fine jewellery. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past 
put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughter. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, in 1943, a man named Edward Podolsky wrote a book entitled How to Be a Good Wife. And here are some of the lowdown, um, the tips that Edward gives us. Don't bother your husband with petty troubles and complaints when he comes home from work. Be a good listener. Let him tell you his troubles. Yours will seem trivial in comparison. Remember, your most important job is to build up and maintain his ego, which gets bruised plenty in business. Morale is a woman's business. Let him relax before dinner. Discuss family problems after the inner man has been satisfied. Social service meeting, an afternoon tea, a matinee or what not is no excuse for there being no dinner ready when a husband comes home from a hard day's work. Men like a clean house. But fussing about all the time, upsetting the house in order to keep it clean, will drive a man from the house elsewhere. And finally, and my favourite, that the underwear should be spotlessly clean goes without saying. But every woman should wear the best quality underwear that she can afford. And the colour should be preferably pink and lace and ruffles. I'm sorry to say, add to the attractiveness of underwear and are liked by the average man. During the early 1900s, women's suffrage began to fight for the right for women to vote in the United Kingdom. The Second World War saw women moving from what had been a traditional role as homemaker into the workplace out of necessity to keep the country running while men were away at war. This shift led to increasing numbers of women entering the workplace when peace for the nation was finally established. Women were no longer satisfied, if they ever were, to be limited in their scope in regards to their place in the world. Fast forward many years and in 2017 and 2018 we saw the birth of the hashtag me too movement and the times up movement as thousands of women around the world broke the silence of sexual abuse and harassment encountered during their working and everyday lives the times up movement was born pursuing equality for women in the workplace in 2021, women began once again to break the silence with Sarah Everard's death, sharing their stories of the fear of male violence when simply walking home. Keys gripped between fingers. We map the corner shops that we could duck into en route. Swap shoes for trainers in case we need to run. 
Keep our music low or turned off, she said. Once I had to hide in a bush for over an hour until two men gave up looking for me. I could hear them plotting explicitly what they were going to do to me and laughing. Women make up around half the population of the world and yet women are the largest persecuted people group. Around the world, women are undereducated, leaving little room for them to claw their way out of poverty. 39,000 baby girls die annually in China because parents didn't give them the same medical care and attention. In India, a bride burning to punish a woman for an inadequate dowry or to eliminate her so that a man could remarry takes place approximately every two hours. In the twin cities of Islamabad and Rawalpindi in Pakistan, 5,000 women and girls have been doused in kerosene and set alight by family members or in-laws or perhaps worse, seared with acid for perceived disobedience. Amartya Sen, Nobel Prize winning economist, developed a gauge for gender inequality that is a striking reminder of the stakes involved. More than one million women are missing from our world. Every year, at least two million girls worldwide disappear because of gender discrimination. In 2002, I sat in a small room in Tanzania as a young girl died slowly from AIDS, having been raped by her father who had caught the disease himself from being with many other women. The life of a young girl cut short due to the consequences of the man whose care she was in. In the UK, almost one in three women aged between 16 and 59 will experience domestic abuse in her lifetime and last year there were 758,941 recorded cases of domestic abuse related crimes with 64 women being killed by their partners what do we the church do with this how do we respond how should we respond? And what does the Bible have to say about the roles of and relationships between men and women? Are women weaker, as described in our passage today, and therefore to be dominated over by men? Are men held in power over women? If a woman fails to submit to her husband, is she sinning against God? Must women submit in all relationships towards men as described in other places where the men is the head? These are the passages that we struggle and we wrestle with in our desire to live biblically faithful lives. We wrestle with how we are meant to outwork the teachings of Paul and Peter and the other New Testament writers in relation to the roles and relationships of men and women. We struggle over the apparent disparity between what we see our world saying through the Time's Up movement and what we read in the letters to the churches in the first century, how must we live as Christians in the 21st century in a world that is still dominated by male violence towards women? How are these relationships to be played out in a way which honours Christ and yet remains faithful to biblical teaching? A little girl asked her mum, mummy, 
Why do you cut the ends off the meat before you cook it? The girl's mother told her that she thought it added flavour by allowing the meat to better absorb the spices. But perhaps she should really ask her grandmother since she always did it that way. So the little girl finds her grandmother and asks grandma, why do you and mummy cut the ends off the meat before you cook it? Her grandmother thought for a moment and answered, I think it allows the meat to stay tender because it soaks up the juices better. But why don't you ask your nana? After all, I learned from her and she always did it that way. The little girl is getting a little frustrated but climbs upon the knee of her great-grandmother and asks Nana, why do you cut the ends off the meat before you cook it? And Nana answered, I don't know why these women do it. I did it because my pot wasn't big enough. When we come to look at any passage in the Bible, we must remember that the writer of the book was not aiming to write to provide direction to those of us living in the 21st century. Rather, they were writing to and speaking to a particular context and situation. The writers of the New Testament letters were often writing to encourage Christians as a minority people group, living with the threat of persecution and also to bring correction to the church that was going astray and being influenced by the cultures of the world around them. In order to really know what the Bible, particularly the New Testament is teaching, we mustn't simply cut the ends off the meat but rather understand the context into which the meat is being placed. Only in doing that can we know how to best cook meat in the 21st century. When we approach the Bible in the relation to the roles of men and women, there appear to be so many contradictions. 1 Corinthians 14 states that women must be silent and then in the next breath in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul talks about the women who were praying and prophesying in the church and doesn't rebuke them or ask them to be silent. We encounter the Jewish women disciples including Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna who had accompanied Jesus during his ministry and supported him out of their private lives not remaining at home in submission to their husbands. One of the women who were reported to be the first witnesses of the resurrection, chief among them Mary Magdalene, she was not the only witness uh, but was called messenger of the risen Christ. Then we have the later converts who could offer their home for meetings and were considered important within this new movement of Christ followers and assumed leadership roles such a woman was Lydia of Philippi. Shouldn't all of these women being at home, serving and submitting to their husbands, being meek and mild and silent? When we read the various New Testament passages regarding the marriage relationship and the relationship between men and women, we need to first understand the social context into which these writers are, are writing. The expectations and social standards of the world inhabited by Paul, Peter, Luke, John and the first century Christians contained a well ex accepted double standard. Marital fidelity was ex expected for the woman but not for the man. Fidelity for women was held as a sign of honour and status. Men, however, would engage in extramarital sexual relationships. One of the non-biblical documents of the day writes this, 
We keep mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our person each day. But we have wives for the bearing of legitimate offspring and to be faithful guardians of the household. It was expected that these marriage relationships were not intimate but contractual ones. The marriage relationship was for the benefit and furtherance of the household and the bearing of children or heirs. The more intimate relationship for the man would be with a mistress or another person apart from the household. Conversion to Christianity within the preceding culture would entail significant changes for that relationship within marriage. If a couple from the first century Mediterranean world were converted to Christianity, what changes would need to take place in that marriage bed and the status and understanding of the marriage relationship? These changes would arguably be considerable and it is into this world that Peter writes his letter to Christians living in the far reaches of the Roman Empire. These Christians are suffering for their faith in Christ. They are suffering social exclusion as they choose not to participate in doing what the pagans choose to do. Some of these Christians suffer because of their close relationship with non-Christians, slaves to masters, wives to husbands. Christianity was perceived not simply as a harmless alternative way of life, but subversive and harmful to the social fabric of society. Peter encourages these Christians to live such good lives that they may give others a reason for the hope they have as they suffer. Christian slaves who worked for unsympathetic masters, Christians who are married to unbelieving partners, Christians who are rejected by friends and family. It is into this cultural landscape that Peter writes in our passage primarily addressing the Christian wives of unbelievers and how they, despite the persecution they may be living under, can live in such a way as to honour Christ and lead their husbands towards a revelation of this Christian faith. In the passage in 1 Peter, there are three particular words I want us to think about. Submission, holy women of the past and weaker vessel. In 2003, I stood at the bottom of an aisle of a church in North Yorkshire and I made my wedding vows or promises to a man I chose to spend the rest of my life with. And for the most part, the promises that I gave that day were the traditional marriage vows, except for the word obey. Traditionally, a bride would promise to obey her husband, originating from the book of Ephesians, where a woman is told to submit to her husband, who is the head. The idea can be traced back to Roman society, where the woman was looked upon as a possession of her husband, or if unmarried, her father. I chose that day to say cherish instead of obey, believing that the word is more reflective of the teachings of the New Testament in regard to marriage and the relationship between men and women that God calls us to model. Peter begins in chapter 2 verse 13 to deal with the issue of submission. He instructs believers to submit to governing authorities and to one another. He particularly addresses citizens, slaves, wives, husbands. Peter makes it clear that submission to others must be practiced, particularly in times of persecution or innocent suffering. Submission is the basis for unity. In any relationship, we find examples of submission in the Godhead, in the church, in marriage, in all Christian relationships. 
These Bible passages about wives and husbands have been used over the years to create a hierarchy of humanity that looks like God, man, woman, children. We're told that this hierarchy is reflective of the Godhead with the Father first, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. And I guess my question has always been, well, which one is more God then? It must be the Father, right? Because he's really God, because he's in charge and the other two are less God because he tells them what to do. You see, we come unstuck theologically when we begin to create such hierarchies. The Godhead, to the best of my understanding, lives in a community of mutual love and submission. And we too are to be bearers of that same kind of submission in our human relationships. Failure to act in submission was at the heart of the fall of Lucifer and the central problem encountered by Adam and Eve at the fall of humankind. Submission is at the core of our relationship with God and the call of Christ to all people to come follow me. The idea of submission in relationships is not limited to that of the marriage relationship, nor that of men and women. But we are called as Christ followers to live in submission to one another, seeking the best for each other. Peter in this passage then encourages the women of unbelieving partners to submit to their husbands, not to simply any man but their husband. There was this question in the book of Corinthians, should a believing wife remain with an unbelieving husband once she's been converted? And Paul answers in 1 Corinthians 7.13, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. This question is being faced by Peter. Peter's encouraging these women to remain in their marriages. When a woman is converted and has an unbelieving husband, where then do her loyalties lie? What a difficult position these women find themselves in when what has previously been culturally acceptable, a marriage as a contract rather than a relationship and an acceptance of infidelity becomes unacceptable in the face of Christ's standards and teachings. Peter is addressing that issue by telling them to continue to submit to the man they are married to. And Paul addresses this in his letter by saying, don't get a divorce. And all of the forbearance and the submission and the continuing honour in the hope that this husband will be saved. We must also note that at the end of the passage where Peter says likewise or in the same way husbands are to be considerate as they live with their wives. Peter uses this word likewise or in the same way three times. Firstly, Peter instructs his readers in chapter 2 verse 13 to submit to every secular authority. Next, he addresses slaves and tells them to be submissive to their masters. Peter 2.18. Then he says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands in Peter 3, um, verse 1. Then he says, husbands, likewise, live together with your wives, 1 Peter 3.7. And then he returns to this subject in Peter, 1 Peter 5.5. 5, and he says, likewise, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, the use of likewise in this passage refers to the idea of mutual submission. 
that Peter focuses on throughout this whole entire passage. The central idea that Peter is trying to teach is not about a hierarchy of people, but rather the way in which the followers of Jesus are to act towards not only other believers, but also those who are not yet believers and those who would persecute them in the hope that they would see Christ in them. To submit is not only the duty of a wife towards a husband or a woman towards a man. Rather, it is a position that all followers of Christ are to hold. Philippians chapter 2 teaches that we are to submit to one another as we imitate Christ's submission. The passage moves on to say, For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Friends, who are these holy women of the past whose examples of submission the wives in the book of Peter are to follow? Could it be Moses's mother in Exodus chapter 2 who took it upon herself to hide Moses away? Could it be Rahab the prostitute in Joshua chapter 2 who defied the men searching and helped Joshua escape? Could it be Deborah the judge and leader of Israel? Could it be Hannah who without permission took it upon herself to seek God and to promise her only first son to God for his service? Could it be one of the women who heard directly from God, Rebecca, Samson's mother um, in Judges 13, the wailing women in Jeremiah 9, or Mary as she has been told that she will carry the Christ within her? Or could it be the women at the tomb who receive the message and the announcement of Christ's resurrection and are told to carry that message to the men? What about Huldah or Miriam or Anna who heard from God and acted without the direct instructions of a man submitting themselves only to God? Who are these holy women who lived lives of quiet and meek submission to their husbands? What about those who disobeyed Pharaoh's commands and yet God blessed them for their disobedience? What about Rebecca, Abigail and Jael who went against their husband's wishes and were blessed by God? What about Esther who disobeyed the law? Are these the examples of the holy women that Peter is referring to? What about Sarah, Abraham's wife? What are the examples she sets in wanting to send Hagar away and God telling Abraham to listen to Sarah and do as she says? Friends, these are the holy women of the past. We must always be careful not to isolate one verse from the Bible, cutting it from the context in which it is placed in order to use it as a direct command for today. We must rather take our understanding from the whole wisdom of scripture, seeking to understand what God taught in the New Testament and how he, he acted, how what he taught in the New Testament and how he acts. This gives us a more rounded understanding and helps us to read scripture in a way that is true to the teachings of God. And finally this morning, what about women, these weaker vessels? Women in the ancient world were with only a few exceptions, disadvantaged socially, economically, politically and legally. Women had less power and less rights than men. And Peter in this passage is not attempting to point out that women are weaker than men and therefore must be dominated and directed. 
Rather, he's pointing out their position in society. He's encouraging these men to be mindful of the disadvantage of the women around them, that they may care better in their different kind of relationship between men and women. He then goes on to quickly remind them that they are heirs with you. These women are heirs with you of the precious gift of life. An echo to Paul's teaching that there is now neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. This teaching should remind us too today to be mindful of the weaker position of women in the world in the 21st century. Those who are not provided with the opportunity for education, those who are abused by family, those who are not counted culturally important or as worthy simply because they were born female. The call to follow Christ is the call for all God's people to live together in mutual submission and care and respect and honour and love. It is the call to exhibit such relationships as the called out people of God that the world might see a different way and in so doing look towards God. It is the call as God's people to not simply model with our own relationships what the kingdom of God looks like. But it is the call to take a stand for those who are unable to stand for themselves. I am a feminist. A dirty word for many in the church. I am not a man hater as many in the church would brand those who call themselves feminists. I am a feminist because I believe that God is a feminist. I believe that the heart of God is pained by the treatment of women made in his image and the inequality that has been perpetuated throughout the centuries by those who would use the name of Jesus. Neither do I believe that it is right for us to simply take our lead and our agenda from the organisations that exist to support women in the world. We must be careful as the people of God that our understanding and our actions come from a biblically faithful place. We must not make men into all, all men into monsters. We must not seek the promotion of women at the detriment of men, but rather together. We must seek Christ's way in all of our relationships between men and women. We must seek a place of mutuality while working together to bring justice and opportunity for those who are unable to lift themselves from the position that the world around them has forced them into simply because they were born female. Perhaps it's time to stop cutting the ends off the meat. And to look again at the scriptures and what the whole council of scripture has to say right from the beginning of the New Testament and the Old Testament. What they have to say about the relationships between men and women and the roles of men and women in the world. Perhaps today you need to repent because a relationship that you're in has not been mutually submissive. Perhaps you're a man who has sought to dominate a woman. Perhaps you are a woman who has sought to dominate a man. Perhaps you've been closing your eyes to the vast injustices around the world faced by women every day and it's time. God is asking us 
to take a stand. Friends, may our relationships together in the Church of Jesus Christ be reflective of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit who live together in love and submission and care and honour and respect and mutuality. And may our relationships in marriage, in friendship, in the church reflect who our God is. Would you pray with me? Lord, we welcome you just now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, challenge us, lead us, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.